I suppose the place to begin this chapter, the mystery we call God, chapter 2, episode 10 of the quest, is with some sort of brief statement as to what I mean by God. Although the Bible attributes certain qualities to God, like love, justice, strength, and truth, knowledge, it does not give any sort of metaphysical or philosophical or academic definition of God. So I will take the same approach here and follow the maxim that says the God that can be defined is not God. By God, I mean, first of all, what St. Anselm, the 11th century bishop and philosopher, meant when he said, God is that than which no greater can be conceived. Anselm was simply saying that no matter what I think or imagine or believe about God, that is not God. God is always beyond any and all of that, ultimately always indefinable, indescribable, inexplicable, unnameable, ever obscure, incomprehensible, a mystery shrouded in an enigma. Second, I mean what Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish scholar, mystic, and rabbi, meant in saying, God is not a being whose existence can be proven by our syllogisms, but a reality in the face of which, when becoming alive to it, all superlatives become cliches. I think the distinction Heschel makes between God as a being and God as a reality is especially significant. A mysterious reality in the face of which, when becoming alive to it, all superlatives become mere cliches. Third, I mean what Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician, physicist, inventor, and philosopher meant when he said, God is not the God of the philosophers, but of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Jesus Christ. I understand him to mean that the God encountered by the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Old Testament, by its saints, sages, prophets, and poets, by the earliest disciples, and by the apostles of Christ, indeed, as revealed by Christ himself, is also the very one I have encountered, that the voice they heard speaking is the very same voice I hear speaking in my own heart. In short, by God, I mean that immeasurable loving power and personal presence that living origin and source of our very existence, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, as Paul put it to the philosophers on Mars Hill. First encountered biblically in the book of Genesis as the creator, not only the creator of humankind in the divine image, but of a whole universe, good and beautiful, the God who is always inviting every single one of us, every one of us without exception, into a relationship of intimate trust and friendship. 
In short, what I am saying, I mean by God, corresponds, as I understand it, to historic and ecumenic or classical Christianity, which is not at all the same thing as either modern fundamentalism or liberalism. And I would think also makes clear that I do not re- that I do not um, believe in an anthropomorphic God, a-, a God who is very much like a human being but uh, possesses superpowers. And that ne- neither do I believe in a God who is a vague, nebulous, impersonal energy like the Force in Star Wars. If the first question is, what do I mean by God? Then I suppose the second, in light of what I've just said, must be one I have frequently asked others who are on this same spiritual quest. When, if ever, did God become more than just a word for you? When raising that question, my own answer is always the same. When I was around six or seven, I don't know, maybe even eight, my my memory of my age at the time is now somewhat fuzzy. But sometime from age six to eight, we were visiting my step-grandparents, Elmer and Vera Emerson. They lived in a Victorian-style house with a large living room in which the adults were talking while my cousin Brenda and I played. My grandmother Emerson, whom people described as an angel, uh, a, a, a woman of, of great kindness and goodness, was in a losing battle with breast cancer. This was in the early 50s and before the many advances in treatment so that uh, virtually every woman diagnosed with breast cancer feared it as a sentence of inevitable suffering and death. My grandmother was often in excruciating pain. And when the pain became unbearably intense, she would go into her bedroom and pray. And when she came out, she would be free of the pain, at least for a while. I don't know now for sure, but I think it is probably, that is probably what the adults were talking about that day when one of them said, well, you know, God is everywhere. God is even in this very room. My cousin and I heard that, and we got really silly with it. We ran laughing around the room, flailing the air with our arms and shouting, where are you, God? I can't feel you, God. I can't see you, God. My mother stopped us and very gently but firmly said something like this. She said, you can't see God with your eyes or feel God with your hands, but God is here. God is everywhere, all the time, and very real. There is nothing and no one greater or more loving than God. And so you should never be silly or disrespectful towards God. And if you can remember that God is always with you, even in really bad or scary or lonely places, you will feel much better. In that moment, I was filled with a sense of 
the reality, a sense of both the, the vastness and the closeness of God. And that is the first time that God became more than just a word to me. Some people think that it is easier for children to believe and harder for adults, especially in the modern world. But I don't know that it is any easier or any harder for to believe in God today than it was in antiquity. I, I do suspect that we modern people as adults may make it harder for ourselves than children do and maybe, and, and maybe harder than people once did. For one thing, contemporary men and women may make it more difficult for themselves to believe in God by not paying attention to life, to reality, and not paying attention to the forces that work in themselves and in the cosmos, and by not paying attention to wonder and mystery. As Ray Bradbury says, the universe exists as a miracle, and we have been born here to witness and celebrate. Our purpose, he wrote, is to perceive the fantastic. I had a conversation with a man who told me he was an agnostic who leaned toward atheism. He said he didn't accept the benevolent God hypothesis, but that in fly fishing, he felt a kind of rhythm that gave him a sense of peace was somehow larger than himself, that transcended the rugged mountains where he fished and was greater than the flowing river and the fish swimming in it. I, I told him that for obvious reasons, I found his experience fascinating and asked if he would pay attention to his experience the next time he went fishing and tell me about it when he had time. Eventually, by paying attention to that beauty, to that peace, to that rhythm, he came to believe that the something more, the rhythm and peace and contentment he experienced fly fishing was God, the mystery of God. The story of Moses's burning bush vision furnishes a more biblical example of what I mean. Moses has fled from Egypt to Horeb, where he marries Zipporah and tends the flocks of Ruel, his father-in-law. Ruel, or Jethro, as he is also known, is a priest, a, a holy person, a wise spirit person. During his 40 years in exile, Moses must have spent countless hours reflecting on the deeper questions of life and reality and on freedom and justice and oppression. Must have reflected on those things both in discussion with Jethro and in solitude while watching the sheep. One day while tending the flocks, Moses has an extraordinary and for him pivotal, definitive experience. He sees or has a vision in which he sees a desert bush in flames, but the fire does not consume the bush. When he looks closer, he hears his name called, Moses, Moses. He is 
overwhelmed by the nearness of God, by the presence of God. Do not come near. Take off your shoes from your feet, he is told, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In this profoundly mystical experience, there is a sense of sacred communion with God, an awareness of being loved, of being chosen, and of being sent. It is paradoxical in that there is a powerful feeling of being accepted by God while at the same time being unworthy to be in God's presence. And what should I say is the name of the God that sent me, Moses asked. And the answer given is, tell the people, Yahweh has sent me. An enigmatic name meaning I am that I am. It could be understood as saying, it is not possible for you to know my name. It is not possible for you to comprehend me, to place me in some easily defined category. It can also be a reassuring word. What my mother had found to be true in her own experience and shared with me that day at my grandmother Emerson's. I am the one who is always and everywhere with you. Or it might be understood to convey the words of the theologian Paul Tillich that God is the ground of all being. Although that sounds, I don't know, a little abstract and impersonal to me. But, and this is important, notice it is only when Moses turns aside to see this great sight that God speaks. Divine presence, mystery, and love, and ultimate meaning are always available. But take consecrated, not concentrated, but consecrated attention to see and hear. To find God, it is best if we are paying attention. As Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it, all earth is crammed with heaven and every bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. So, at least one impediment to belief, at least one impediment to encountering the, the mystical presence of God, is a lack of sustained attention, a kind of openness and receptivity to, to life as poetic mystery. A mystery from the Christian or biblical perspective is a secret. It is a secret known and understood by those who have been initiated into the fellowship of the committed. So, in theological and biblical studies, while a mystery is a secret, it is an open secret. It's not like an ordinary secret either. For example, it's not like a mathematical problem that leaves no questions once the answer has been found. The exploration of mystery will lead to knowledge, but that knowledge itself 
will lead to ever deeper questions and insights. Mystery, therefore, has about it feelings of adventure and romance. But one must be on the journey to know this. Life, as someone has said, is a mystery to be lived and not a problem to be solved. And which of those two approaches we take makes all the difference in the quality of our life. Many spiritual and religious experiences are exotic and beautiful, like the one Admiral Byrd recorded in his journal during his 1934 expedition to the Antarctic. But I think of many more experiences that are more ordinary, like this one a pastor shared with me. He said, I had traveled by plane from the San Francisco Bay Area to Phoenix, Arizona, where I was to meet with another pastor and the leaders of his church to discuss a project we were all working on. The pastor picked me up at the airport and we drove to his church. He said he needed to finish working on his church bulletin, but it wouldn't take long, so I might as well keep him company in his office while we finished up. And then we would go get something to eat. As I was sitting there, he said, it was like an invisible force, quietly and unobtrusively, drawing me up out of the chair I was in and gently but firmly propelling me like a pressure on my back into the church, and then on my shoulders so that the natural and appropriate thing was to kneel down before the altar and pray. Although, while I can call it prayer, there were really no words. I don't know how long the experience lasted, I think only a few seconds. But in those few seconds, there was an incredibly powerful, I will not say feeling because that was not quite it. I, I guess maybe an awareness of God as real and present. For several days afterwards, I felt a heightened sense of joy. I was energized. I felt an incredible and wonderful inner sense of power and was afraid of nothing. I doubt that anyone at the time thought there was anything different about me. And I didn't attempt to tell anyone. I didn't think anyone would really understand. Even as I tell it now, put it into words, I realize that no words can come anywhere near to describing what happened or how it changed me. I have begun thinking here at the beginning of this chapter about the reality of God by reflecting on the centrality of mystery, because I want to think next about the classical intellectual arguments for God, and I'm convinced that they are best comprehended by those who know that everything, absolutely everything, is saturated with sacred mystery. And although I may very well be able to explain something scientifically or uh, or in nat by natural causes. 
For example, a woman giving birth. That does not make it. That explanation does not make it any less a mystery. I want to make one more comment. Um, comes from um, the philosopher Arthur J. Balfour um, in his 1940, 1914 uh, Guilford lectures, which were, uh, or I guess it was 1930, and then his book printed um, in 1940, 1914, uh, Theism and Humanism. I think it furnishes a nice conclusion for this reflection. As I, as I remember, he said something like this. He said, the root principle is that if we would maintain our highest beliefs, values, thoughts, and emotions, we must find an adequate source or origin for them. Beauty must be more than an accident. The source of morality must be moral. The source of knowledge must be rational. Meaning must derive from some universal principle or principles. The human sense of sacred mystery must have its origin in ultimate mystery, the mystery we call God.